Um, you're going to be Mark 10, verse 46 through 52. That's going to be our first passage. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho, and again, what Jesus does in Jericho is very limited by Mark's authorship. In Luke, we see a little bit more of what he did, including the story of a man named Zacchaeus. But uh, in Mark's gospel, because you have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what we have here is now they came to Jericho, and as they went out of Jericho, that's all we're going to hear about Jericho, for the most part, with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, for eyes he's called and throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Father today, Wherever it is we've come from, whatever it is we're going through, we are in a place right now with your word open, asking to improve our vision. Help us to see things for what they are, that we might hear a truth and understand that truth and continue to turn and continue to trust continue to change. And this we ask in Jesus' name. From grade school, we're taught about the five senses. There is the sense of taste and touch, hearing, seeing, and smelling. I say smelling last out of the five senses because it is indeed the least important. And the reason I say this is because I have no sense of smell and I haven't missed it. The five senses. And when all five senses are working together in a human being without hindrance, we're able to more fully enjoy the human experience. For some like myself, you might have a sense lacking, and because of that, you might have a, if your hearing is lacking, you might have a more acute uh, sense of sight or smell. And, and if your taste buds are lacking, um, you might have a, uh, an increased sense of touch. Sometimes when one sense is lacking, another sense kind of compensates for it. Um, but nevertheless, the senses are important in the creation of man in God's image. You know, even a verse that says, taste and see that the Lord is good, appeals to our senses, because God desires that you have the experience with Him. And you know that when you go to a restaurant, what they're trying to do is they're trying to appeal to your senses. I used to work at a restaurant in Manhattan called Carmine's. And uh, Carmine's was family-style Italian restaurant. You walk in, and the first thing that you hear 
is either Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin, and they're blaring in the background. And so you've got the music going, and you can hear that, it appeals to that. And according to some people, you can smell the food, and the food smells wonderful, but not this guy. And then when they bring out the trays of food, the trays of food are family style, and the presentation is always amazing. And so already it's hearing, it's smelling, it is seeing, and then the taste of the food. Wow. And then if you've ever been to an amusement park, what they try to do is, well, they try to, they just try to get you with everything. Um, for my daughter, Hannah, uh, it's amazing when we go to Mickey's Philharmonic, uh, that when we go to Mickey's Philharmonic, and it's a little 4D presentation, so what happens is that uh, the show is in 3D, and so the objects come at you, and the sound is in surround sound, and it's just this sight and sensory extravaganza. When you go there, they have water that comes out of you during certain scenes when there's a splash on the screen, and it's this amazing thing that Mickey's Philharmonic. Um, you go to the amusement parks, they've got roller coasters, and they, they try to put you on sensory overload when you go there. One of the things that they do in Mickey's Philharmonic is they put on these 3D glasses. How many of you have ever worn this? Have 3D glasses? All right, when I was a kid, the way that they did it was, um, you would have the red and blue or red and green system. So you would have two images on the screen. I guess the way that it works for 3D, um, and then now that's being used for television and that type of thing, two images are displayed on the screen, one in red, the other in blue or green, and the filters on the glasses allow one image to enter each eye, and your brain does the rest. Your brain puts it together. You can't really have a color movie when you're using color to provide the separation, so the image quality is not nearly as good as what it is now. Because now when you walk into Disney World and they do something like Mickey's Philharmonic, they have a 3D presentation, and this is with what they call polarization. And if you're not familiar with the process, it's kind of fascinating, okay? It has two synchronized projectors, one coming from this way, another coming from this way. They project two respective views on the screen, each with a different polarization. The glasses allow only one of the images into each eye because they contain lenses with different polarization. And again, the brain does the rest. And I bring this up to you to say, listen, because when you're taking in a 3D experience, you can watch the movie, but if you're watching it without the right lenses, what's going to happen is this. It's going to be a bit blurry. It's going to be a bit annoying. It's going to strain your eye. Without the right lenses, you're not going to be able to experience the movie for what it was meant to be. Now, for us walking through this life, we have physical sight, but as we have physical sight, there's also another component to our sight, and that is the spiritual component. Matter of fact, to all our senses. There's a spiritual component by which we look at the world, and we take it in, and some of us that are in tune with God's Word, we're able to see, okay, based off of the truth of God's Word, we take a look and we receive and we respond based off of the truth that's in here. But to those whose spiritual eyes have not been opened, what God says is this. In Scripture, repeatedly, he talks to some of the people who are unable to see spiritual things like, listen, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. And so what we have is a man today in Scripture, physically he's blind. His name is Father Man. Physically he is blind. But when it comes to spiritual vision, this man can see 2020. Here's the thing, in Mark's Gospel, everybody is such a miracle. Because when you look at Bartimaeus, this is the very 
last healing that Mark records in his gospel. And the fourth, those that are spiritually blind, put Jesus on the cross. You have Bartimaeus, who is blind, but he sees Jesus so clearly. So let's read Mark 10, 46, and we're just going to start plowing through this. Um, Mark 10, 46, it says, Now they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, I'm sorry. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Okay, let's stop there. And the first information that we have in the passage is where Jesus is going to and where he's coming from. Again, the only time that Jericho is mentioned in the book of Mark pretty much is right here, that Jesus went in and he went out. But Jericho, we know to be an important place. Why? Because there was another Joshua, another um, another deliverer that went into Jericho, and his name is Joshua. The Hebrew Yeshua means the same as Jesus. And so, many years before this, there was a victory, a great victory, before they could enter the promised land that was won in Jericho. And so Jesus has gone into Jericho, he's left Jericho, and it says that there was a great multitude following him. At this point, again, they've heard the rumors about what Jesus could do. They've heard that he would give sight to the blind. He did that back in Mark 8. They heard that he could hear the deaf, that he could help the deaf hear. They heard that he could make the lame walk. They heard that he could raise the dead and feed the multitudes and walk on water. So you can imagine the crowd that's following Jesus, and now he's at an all-time high popularity-wise, and but he's on his way to the cross, really even though he's told the disciples three times. And so, if you remember the story of Jericho, it's kind of interesting because, you know, God's called Babylon, Jericho, Jericho, and if you know the song, what happens is that the children of Israel march around once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day they march around, they let out a shout, and victory is given, and the walls come tumbling down. All right? And so now, as Jesus is on his way to the defeat and the victory of the cross, he's leaving Jericho, and here's this man named Bartimaeus. Now, here's again why this is so interesting. Because the spiritually blind are about to crucify Jesus, but when you think of Bartimaeus, even in his name, all right, we're first given the um, the Aramaic name, which says Bartimaeus. So the name is given in Aramaic, but there's a translation here in the Greek that says the son of Timaeus. Do you get the significance? A man with an Aramaic name with a Greek translation, is going to see Jesus when those who he came to save, they're going to reject him completely. And so Bartimaeus is sitting there, so that's the first thing we see is his name, the name Timaeus, this is kind of interesting. Uh, his father is named Son of Timaeus, that's all he's known by, the fact that he's the Son of Timaeus. He would have been excluded from going to the temple, and so his name is only associated with that of his father, and that's his identity. He's the son of Timaeus. But what also defines him is the fact that he's begging. Now the name Timaeus in the original language means honor. So he's called the son of honor. But what he's doing is less than honor. He's so dependent on everybody else. Again, this is his identity. He's dependent on everybody else, everybody that walks by. Uh, when he hears someone walk by, Alms, Alms, um, do you have any food? He's completely dependent on everybody else because this is the last thing that defines Bartimaeus, and that is that he's blind. 
and that's his identity. It actually says in the passage, he's blind Bartimaeus, and that's how he was known. So Bartimaeus is kind of identified by his incurable condition. And make no mistake, back in this time, blindness was indeed an incurable condition. There was no holistic doctor, there was no traditional doctor, there was no therapist, there was no medication, there was no infomercial that could cure Bartimaeus. Um, in the same way, we have an incurable condition. That incurable condition is because of our separation from God was caused by sin. That's incurable by man's standards and by man's efforts. Now it's kind of interesting that we have a blind man that can't see uh, because of his, that's his incurable condition. But if you understand where the incurable condition came from, well, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'll turn there. It's Genesis 3. We've been looking at a lot of the book of Genesis lately. But when they are in the garden, Adam and Eve, I want you to think about this. Because Adam and Eve were walking perfectly with God. They were walking perfectly with God. But verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now she's trying to, we're not going to do verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this, but to understand it, the enemy's trying to throw doubt into Eve's mind. He's trying to get her to see things differently. She's never looked at this tree before and said God was holding out on us. Nevertheless, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat it, of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the enemy trying to do? He's trying to get her to look at something that she's always looked at, but to look at it differently, more through his lenses, than what God has revealed to them. And he's trying to twist truth so that they see things differently. And so now it says here, so when the woman saw, listen, first thing, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So where was the husband during this moment? Right next to him. All right? We're going to take a poll to see how many women and how many guys we have in the room so we can see whose fault it was. I think, we're, I think we got about even today. So uh, how many of you say we're not going to go there? All right. We're going to go with Cindy Buffett on this. Some people say there's a woman to blame, but I know it's my fault. The Bible says that through one man sent into the world, and that was Adam. And so she also gave to her husband, and he ate. I mean, listen, this is the first consequence of sin. It's a visual impairment. The first consequence of sin says both of their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves covered. We're not going to go through the rest of the passage, but the first impairment is a visual impairment. And now because of that, what's happened is sin has entered the world, separation from God, and death by sin. And now listen. Everything that we see that is wrong with the human condition, whether it manifests itself as disease, or hatred, or racism, or pornography, or addiction, or tragedy, 
or natural disaster, any mental, physical, spiritual, natural struggle that we have on this earth is because of man's separation from God, because of what happened at that moment. Not only that, but the greater problem is this, is that we as sinners, we look at the world in a different way than we were created to. There's not an appreciation for the things that God made. There's not a responsibility. The book of Romans says, hey, that God made all of this, and the people didn't acknowledge God, nor were they thankful to him. Nor were they thankful to him. Now, let me ask you something. When you look at the world, this all makes sense, right? Because you can see us getting closer and closer to God, and everything's getting better and better, or no. Or do you think things are getting worse and worse? And it seems like things are snowballing, and that we've come seemingly to a point of no return because of this incurable condition. Here's the problem with incurable condition. Here are three reasons incurable conditions remain incurable. One, we don't think we have one. Alright? So we don't, we don't think we have an incurable condition. Alright, I know I'm a little off, I know I'm something a little wrong, but I don't admit that I have an incurable condition when I'm separated from God. Two, we think that it is curable and that we can fix it or manage it. And that's when we try to fix things through our works and through the things that we do. And the third reason that incurable conditions remain incurable is that we don't believe that there's a God who can do the impossible. Somewhere along the lines, we stop believing. And please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that every physical manifestation of our condition is curable. I mean, it's curable, but that it will be true. It's not that, I, that we don't know whether or not it's God's will. Anything spiritual that you're going through, and we've said this before, anything spiritual, 100%, it's going to be cured on this planet. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But physical, we see people in Scripture sometimes who don't necessarily receive physical healing, but they receive the strength to endure. So you have this blind beggar, and he's on the road, his name is Bartimaeus, he's the son of Timaeus, he's on the road begging. In verse 47 it says, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he warns him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise. He is calling you. Stop right there. Again, whenever Bartimaeus would hear other people coming along, he would only ask for what he knew they could give. All right, most people know nobody's going to be able to heal my sight, so that's not what he's asking for. He's asking for food. He's asking perhaps for money. All right, that's what beggars did. He's asking for temporary relief because that's all that this world can ever give to an incurable condition. So what you ask is kind of contingent upon the person that you're asking. Listen, don't ask me to put together something that needs to be assembled. Because I can't do it. <laughs> I can't put it. I'm not good with my hands. Don't ask me to build an offering box. I couldn't do that. I don't ask my father if I can borrow a million dollars. Why? Because it's not within his capacity to be able to give it. And so what you ask is kind of contingent on who you're asking and what you believe about the one that you're asking. But one day, as he's asking for alms and as he's asking for food, what happens is he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming into town. There's excitement, and they heard about these things that Jesus could do. He might be the Messiah. We believe he's the deliverer. 
And again, rock star status is Jesus is coming. For Nancy's ears kind of perked up. Here's why. Because back in Mark 8, four chapters ago, back at that same you know, part of answer, he heard the guy coming into town to give his condition. He heard this man actually going one time that nobody else could heal. That's what he heard. And then he put it together with a prophecy that was together perhaps in Isaiah. And I just want to read this for you from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Uh, and this would be a, a prophecy that they were familiar with during this time. It says here, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Stop right there. When you hear that, and you understand that that's a promised Messiah, does that sound good to it sounds good to me. It sounds good to me when you hear the eyes of the blind are going to be open, the ears of the deaf shall be stopped, the lame are going to leap like a deer. This sounds great. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. To me, that sounds great. And if it sounds great to you, then think of how great it sounded to this man who had been blind, and we don't know how old he was. We don't know how long he'd been blind. We don't know what made him blind. All we know is this, is that he was blind and he heard that there was going to be the possibility of this Jesus of Nazareth coming into town that he might be able to see. So he heard what Jesus could do. He understood how it pertained to the scriptures. And so now what does he do? It says that he cries out, Son of David. He cries out to the Messiah. Now, again, that term for cry is pretty interesting. It says that he cries out. The original word in the Greek language is crazy. It was like the cry of a raven. It was a desperate cry. It wasn't just calling out to someone. It was a desperate, guttural cry, almost like the cry of a raven, like a croak or a shriek. Matthew 15, 22 says, a desperate woman cries is the same term because her daughter suffered from possession. That would be a cry for prayer. Mark 15, when they were cursed, when they're screaming, crucify him, they're crying out out of desperation. In Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cries out to his father. It's the same term that's used. It's a helplessness, a desperate cry. It is not a flippant calling out. It is a desperate cry. Help me! It's a desperate cry. In this, we get a lesson in prayer. The desperation and the one we go to. The desperation in the direction of our prayers. Right? The desperation in the direction of our prayer. Are you desperate for God? Do you see things in your life that you know how only God can do this? What are the things in your life right now that you're crying out to God for? You know, what made David a man after God's own heart was that he cried out to God. Sometimes he cried out in praise, and sometimes he cried out in desperation, and sometimes he just cried, I don't know, just felt like crying. 
So you can be real with God and you can cry out to God, but whatever the thing is, is that what we need to do, because this is how prayer starts, that in God's sovereignty, He allows you to go through something or ordain something, or you bring something upon yourself, and that means what to do. Brings you to your knees. And now what happens? Now you're finding out. And what you're looking for is something only God can do. So you're looking for miracles. You're moving into your knees every time. Because prayer itself is a miracle. I can even have conversations with my God through His Son Jesus Christ. That in of itself is a miracle. And until I recognize that prayer is a miracle, that God has opened up the lines of communication through a method and means so desperate as sending his son so that he can save the likes of us. And so what you have here is a cry out, son of David. He's acknowledging who he believes Jesus is. And then there's what he cries out. What is he crying out? He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. The reason so many of us don't necessarily see answer to our prayers is because we don't believe we're as desperate as this man is. See, the gospel is so important. You know, we talked about it when we were up at Honey Lake this weekend. The gospel said by one theologian is just one beggar telling another beggar where to go and beg for it. So he's going to the son of David, and what he has he's asking mercy. He's asking for relief from an incurable, hopeless condition. That's the mercy that he's asking for. Now, here's the good news. If you're in a hopeless, incurable state, and you're going through a struggle, the incurable condition leads to the cry of desperation. And it brings you to your knees. So the need brings you to your knees, acknowledging the power of God, and you're asking for relief. Desperate because you believe he can truly do something about it. You see, if you're familiar with scripture and you've read about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you kind of see all the different places that he manifests over nature, over illness, over death. And now you have something that's going on in your life that only he can heal. And what are you asking for? We're asking for mercy. Because too many of us are not finding mercy. We're not finding relief. Because all we've tried to do is seek the world's methods of relief. We've tried to seek relief through relationships. We've tried to seek relief through medication. We've tried to uh, seek relief through getting promotion and through making more money. We've tried to seek relief in all these ways, and we're wondering why we're not experiencing God because we've become so dependent on the world's way of doing things. And we're sitting here saying, God, why can't I feel you? Why am I not experiencing you? Because you've been relying on the other things. And you haven't said, you haven't gotten to the point where you said, mercy. How many of you ever played the game mercy? It hurts. Okay, I used to play with my uncle, and I was just, like you said, I was just a little pup. And, uh, and I played these games with my uncle, and it would really hurt me. Yes, he did. He said, um, uh, and so we would play mercy, and he would bend my hand back. I'm not going to give up. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. And finally, he was like, okay, I have mercy. 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 And so my question is this. Is it, have you come to the point yet where you've gone to the son of David, you've gone to Jesus, and you've said mercy? Have you given up yet, or are you still fighting on your own? 
Because if you're fighting on your own, you're depending on your own wisdom, your own resource, and all these things. We start to wonder why we struggle in a society more than ever that is struggling with depression and anxiety and anger. We're wondering why. Well, why is our society struggling with these things more so now than ever? We get further and further away from God, and here we become a people that don't acknowledge that we need mercy, God's mercy. See, a lot of us are praying God's blessing on our country. Give me a favor, don't. And until our leadership turns to God actively, Here's what you can pray for our country. Pray for mercy. Pray that God has mercy on us. So he's brought to his knees. He's brought to the point of needing communication. But here's what happens. As he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Look at verse 48. It's kind of interesting. Verse 48 says that many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more. He cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Listen, when the world is telling you to stop, when the world is telling you to quit, here's a great lesson in prayer. It's about persistent prayer. Don't let the world tell you what to pray for and what not to pray for. Let God determine that, and you cry out. Because when you don't know what to pray for, that's okay. You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, and the Holy Spirit is growing for the things that you don't know that you need. I'm praying for someone else. I don't know what they need sometimes. So what do I have? Ah. ah. The Holy Spirit growing inside me. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what they need. But listen. If a thousand people in the world tell you to shut up and God tells you to cry out, you cry out. You call out to him. You desperately call out to him. You don't let anybody stop you from calling out to him. He cries out louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stands still. Look at this. This is amazing. So Jesus stood still and commanded for him to be called out. Everybody else, think the disciples would know better by now. Or the people that were following Jesus would say, shut up. Stop, stop crying out to him. People are always trying to turn people away from trying to follow Jesus. Do you think they wanted that kid to come down from the tree? No, they would have excluded him. When the parents tried to bring their children to see Jesus, do you think that the followers wanted them to bring their children to Jesus? No, get them out of it. They had not been hanging out with Jesus, I guess, long enough to understand that it was those that were crying out and most desperate for him. But those are the ones that are going to make them stand still and say, look, we're going to do something right here and right now. So it was a cry of desperation because of an incurable condition. Let your incurable condition bring you to a cry of desperation. And then what you're going to have, you're going to have a God experience. Jesus stood still, commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. Listen, when you're within hearing distance of God's word and you're going through a struggle, here's what we say. Be of good cheer. Jesus is talking to you. He's going to give you what you need. He's either going to give you deliverance or he's going to give you strength to endure, but he's going to be with you. Why? Because you're asking him. You can call upon God. Listen, the Bible tells us that even uh, even us being evil, uh, when our child asks us uh, for something, we oblige them 
How much more will God then give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? And the Holy Spirit gives us whatever we need for every situation, whether it be wisdom, whether it be courage, whether it be uh, encouragement, whatever it is we need for the situation, we can depend on the Holy Spirit. So be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. I would say the same thing to you, church, today. Be of good cheer, why? Because you came to church today, you need to hear from God, and God's not going to speak to you today. Be of good cheer. The Whenever you got your word open, whenever you got the Holy Spirit here, whenever you're surrounded by his people, be of good cheer. He's calling you today. So when he calls you, you got to respond. Watch. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. This begins so way off. Throwing aside his garment. It's believed that the garment that he was throwing aside, that's why it's in the information in the passage, was a beggar's garment. And he threw away the beggar's garment because he knew that when he hurts the master, he was never going to need it again. He was never going to need it again. When the master was calling him, okay, that's it. The master's calling me. I cried out in desperation. The master's calling me. I'm going to Jesus. This garment that defined me, the people look at me and said, okay, he's a beggar. And this is the, this is the garment that a beggar would wear. I'm putting that down and I'm never picked that up again as I'm going to Jesus. You see, when there's an incurable condition and it leads to a cry of desperation, it's going to lead you to a God experience. And that God experience is going to be very personal for you. Now, I, I don't want to. I don't want to misunderstand that because we're living in a society that says, "Oh, your personal relationship, God. What your personal relationship, God?" And we become so individualized. And it is about personal relationship. It's based on its glory. It's not the right personal satisfaction. Because God has a better plan for my life than I do. And so once this man hears the call, what he does is he gets up, he casts his garment aside, throws his garment aside, throws aside his garment. Don't need this anymore. That's faith. That's faith. I'm throwing away the thing that once identified me, getting rid of that. It's not going to work anymore. Sometimes it happens. God calls us to, we throw aside our garment. And then when things start going rough for us, you know what we do? We go fix the garment kind of. Okay, I threw it away and I thought this, but you know what? I'm going to go pick up the garment again. And, and so picking up the garment again, then I'm going to revert back to the things I was doing. No! When the master calls you, he calls you from something to free you for something. He calls you from something to free you for something. But you're going to have to leave the garment behind. You're going to have to leave that thing that he asked. Then when he called you, you made a decision to drop that garment because that was not going to define who you were anymore. Don't define you now. Throwing aside his garment, he rose, came to Jesus. And so Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? That's the servant heart of Jesus Christ. What do you want me to do for you? Even after he told the disciples he was going to be nailed to a cross, that he was going to be betrayed, James and John came to him and said, well, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you. I just told you I was going to a cross. Okay, so now you're going to be going to do it. Nevertheless, Jesus said the same thing. He said the same thing to his disciples. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, and I, 
Rabbi and I was not the same rabbi. Rabbi and I was saying, listen, teacher, Lord, master, that in and of itself was a terminology of submission. It was an admission of submission. Rabbi and I, that I might receive my sight. Now he gets specific in his request. Before he was trying for mercy, but now when he's right in front of Jesus, now he asks specifically for his need. Rabbi, not so badly to see. Jesus said to him. Now, what's so interesting about the feelings of Jesus? Deaf man comes to Jesus. What does he do? He stops his ears. He touches his tongue. And the other guy that came to Jesus that was blind, Jesus put mud in his eye and spit in his eye. Now, if I'm a blind man, I kind of prefer what he does right here. Okay, rather than spitting in the eye, he says, okay, go your way. And he just says it. The one who created the eye, the one who created the ear, the one who created the mouth, but listen, go your way. He just says it with the word. Your faith has made you well. And what you have here is because the man has cried out in faith, again, what you have is a word given to him. Jesus doesn't need to touch him. And this specific situation, what he does instead is he speaks young upon the man, go your way, your faith has made you well. And so what you have is an incurable condition, leading to a cry of desperation, leading to a God experience, lastly, leading to a change of direction. Listen to what it happens next, because it's how you respond to the healing that you're given. It says that immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. He received his sight and he followed Jesus on the road. And his life was never going to be the same because the man that was blind, his eyes had been opened. And now he was looking at everything differently. Why would call this of another man who thought he was seeing clearly? His name was Saul of Tarsus. Saul, what he was doing was, he was pretty much, he thought he had a right with God, and he was persecuting the Christians. And persecuting the Christians, Paul, well, one day, Jesus taps on his shoulder, and he says, why are you kicking against the goads? And Saul of Tarsus, one of the most wretched characters in the New Testament, says, what are you offering, Lord? And he's blinded for three days. Doesn't that make sense? Because sometimes God has to put us in situations where we can't see in order to get us to see. So if you're in a situation in a season in your life right now where you can't see, there's perhaps a reason that God wants to reveal himself to you in a very, very special way. I'm closing today with the story of a famous hymn writer. Her name was Fanny Crosby. And she gave us more than 6,000 gospel songs. Although blinded by an illness at the age of six weeks, she never became bitter. One time a preacher sympathetically remarked, Well, I think it is a pretty brief pity that the Master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. She replied quickly, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I should be born more? Why? asked the clergyman. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that I shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. One of Miss Crosby's hymns was so personal that for years she kept it to herself. And it got 
Thank you, Lord, for the truth that has freed us, given us sight. 